Today's scripture reading is from Nahum 1, 6 through 15. Please read with me the verses in bold. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They're consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength in many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good to worship with you this morning. If you're worshiping with us for the first time, welcome. Um, again, my name is Daniel. Uh, glad that you're worshiping with us uh, this morning. If you and I are friends and we know each other, I'm glad to be back. Uh, I hope you are too that I'm back. Uh, it's so good to be with the church family this morning and worshiping uh, together. I have missed uh, you all. I did get a chance to view the live stream uh, the past two Sundays, but it is not the same as being here in person. And so glad to be back. Uh, again, just a little recap of my travels. Um, two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to be a part of, a, of an installation service out in the Bay Area of one of our church plants in our denomination. Uh, they had long waited for a new pastor, and uh, it was good to see one installed, uh, a good friend, someone I have known for a long time, and so it was good to be there worshiping two weeks ago. Uh, again, connecting with old friends and, uh, and meeting new ones as well. And again, last week I was in the Bay, with a different church plant, uh, again, also in the Bay, uh, and much the same, preaching at a friend's church, connecting with familiar faces, uh, old students. If you can, um, yeah, ministering to students way back to my time um, doing ministry at UC Berkeley and uh, even doing ministry at UC Davis. And so uh, now they have families of their own. And so thank you for allowing me the opportunity to do uh, stuff like this and bless other churches. And so thank you that... Uh, I got a chance to go, and thank you for receiving me back this morning. This morning, we are on installment number seven. Installment number seven of a sermon series on the minor prophets that we're calling Divine Intervention. We're talking about the kind of intervention that's needed when sometimes we're oblivious to the harm we're causing ourselves, either by our own actions or by our inactions, or sometimes when harm is being committed against us 
and we are in desperate need of an intervention by a person who cares more deeply about us than we do about ourselves. Well, the minor prophets read like this, an intervention of a God who does not leave us to ourselves, but meddles, he disrupts, and he intervenes for the goodness and for the sake of Israel. Well, this morning we are in Nahum, the seventh member of a 12-member minor prophet committee. They're not all contemporaries, but we think that there are 12, and these minor prophets are the last 12 books of the Old Testament before the coming of Jesus in the New. But if we're in the seventh, it also means that we're more than, I guess we're halfway through the minor prophets. I know the past two sermons on the books of Jonah and Micah have been excellent. Minor prophet number five and minor prophet number six. Both really good sermons. After the sermon on Micah this past Sunday, I even got a, that was a really good sermon comment from one of my kids. Mind you, it wasn't me who was preaching. (laughs) But I can vouch for the validity of that statement. It really was a great sermon about the mishpats, about the justice of God and his love for cities. Pastor Brad mentioned the importance of cities last week. Quoting Pastor Tim Keller, he told us that the city is humanity intensified. Great things, significant things, influential things happen in the city. But so does the mayhem of human nature. Again, quoting Keller, he says, the city is a magnifying glass that could bring out the best or the worst in human nature. And Nineveh is such a city. The small three-chapter prophetical book of Nahum is like a poor sequel to the book of Jonah. It's another pronouncement of doom and gloom about judgment and wrath on Nineveh. If you remember the book of Jonah, you may remember in the story of Jonah about a man who fled westward when he was told by God to go eastward to Nineveh. And in this journey in the opposite direction by boat, a strong wind causes the ship to start sinking. And so the people decide to throw Jonah overboard. He gets swallowed by a big fish. He survives in the belly of the great fish and then finally spit out onto dry ground after three days. And reluctantly, only reluctantly, does he preach to the Ninevites who end up repenting of their sins and God relents, which gets Jonah really, really mad. (laughs) Well, the book of Nahum follows 150 years, we think, or so after the book of Jonah. The prophet Jonah had already gone to Nineveh, preached a great sermon, the greatest sermon, I think, uh, from a reluctant preacher. And the 120,000 people who live in Nineveh come to repent. And God relents. He preaches to the Ninevites, and they repent, and Jonah gets really angry. 150 years later, Nahum the prophet goes to that same place, the same city of Nineveh, that great city mentioned again in the book of Nahum, 
And again, the prophecies there against Nineveh and Jonah and the one found in Nahum are, it feels like two sides of the same coin. And again, we used that word last week, mishpat, the justice of God that reveals both his judgment as well as his mercy. One ends with the mercy or the repentance of the people of Nineveh uh, and the holding off of judgment, and the other, a rebellion of a repeat offender that leads to its downfall. The book is a message about the destruction of Nineveh. The two books, so similar and yet so different. Let's take a look at Nineveh. What do we know about Nineveh? The book of Jonah describes Nineveh, Nineveh as the, that great city. So vast that the book of Jonah describes it as a three days journey in breadth and a city that boasted in a population of 120,000 people. Historians describe Nineveh as one of the oldest and the greatest cities in antiquity. It was regarded as the great intellectual and cultural center of the world with beautiful gardens, with parks and aqueducts and canals, and they even boasted a zoo. It was one of the most affluent and most likely the largest urban center of the world at that time. They were also the most powerful with Nineveh as the capital of the great empire of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire. What a magnificent city this was. But oh yes, what a wicked city it was. A city at its best and a city at its worst. Let me read you a description by one historian of their atrocities against their neighboring countries. Nineveh grew rich at the expense of the nations it had plundered. To Nineveh came the distant chieftains who kissed the royal feet, rebel leaders paraded in fetters, distant and deceitful kings tied with dog chains and made to live in kennels. To Nineveh were sent gifts of far-off tribute, heads of vanquished enemies, crown princes as hostages, beautiful princesses as concubines, in Nineveh, rulers who experienced rare mercy carried brick and mortar for building operations. Their recalcitrant captives were flayed, obstinate opponents crushed to death by their own sons. The Nineveh against which the prophet thunders divine denunciation had become the concentrated center of evil, the capital of crushing tyranny, the epitome of cruelest torture, end quote. They were known for their bloodshed and cruelty. They burned cities. They cut off heads and st stuck people on poles. They attacked and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, God's chosen people. They invaded the southern kingdom of Judah and besieged Jerusalem. They were oppressive. They were awful. They were merciless. No wonder Jonah did not want to preach. In Nineveh. Particularly if he knew that God would be gracious, that God would be merciful, that he would relent, 
that he would be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And it is in the midst of this repeat offense of Nineveh, this total disregard of God who had relented before, in the midst of this brutality again by Nineveh, that God pronounces judgment on them. You see, as true as it is of the other prophetical books, it is true of Nahum as well. There's not a lot of comfort or consolation in these words for Nineveh in the book of Nahum. Again, you may be sitting and asking, then why are you preaching about a nation, prophecy against a nation, an oracle of doom against Assyria, a nation that existed in the distant past? Why preach about a prophecy that has already come to pass about a nation that no longer exists? The book's relevance is difficult to grasp. Why start a Sunday morning on such negativity? How do we apply the message of Nahum to our own lives in the 21st century? Well, I believe the book is still relevant. The answer comes, I think, in looking at the character of God and looking at why God does what he does in the book of Nahum. The key, I believe, is in the first eight verses of chapter one. Perhaps there are more than three, but I think there are three reasons why God does what he does and why God chooses to destroy Nineveh. One, in verse two, it says, the Lord is a jealous God. He's a jealous God. When we use the word jealous, we use it in the sense of being envious of someone who has something that we don't. God is never jealous because he is needy or because he is greedy or because he's covetous. In Exodus chapter 20, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, we read that commandments, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. It is not because God is envious of something that he wants or he needs. Notice that God is jealous when something is given, right, or when someone gives to another something that rightly belongs to him. God is speaking of people making idols and bowing down to them and worshiping these idols instead of giving God the, uh, the worship that he deserves, that belong to him and to him alone. You see, jealousy is an important aspect of his true majesty, his holiness, and his love. Not ever because he is envious or because he needs anything from us, but because he sets up a covenant, uh, a covenant relationship with us where he gives us everything. And he expects that we worship him alone. You see, inherent to his character, a God goes to great lengths to protect his reputation. Right? This is the kind of jealousy we're talking about. A God who protects his reputation. The one who protects that covenant relationship with his children. 
This is what we mean when he says he is a jealous God. Or how about when it says that he is a, an avenging God? The Lord is an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. It says in verse 2, the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The text tells us that he is probably the, the, the truest and the best avenger. He is an avenging God. You might be thinking that seems petty, a God who takes revenge for an offense. I mean, we might call it something like the empire strikes back. I don't, that seemed like funny at the moment when I wrote it. <laughs> but think about for a second, when we see God as an avenger, it speaks of the character of God who does what is right. One who is fiercely committed to justice. He protects the innocent by preventing harm, by punishing crime, by making sure that, uh, that all is right in the world, that he upholds justice fiercely and fervently. I mean, look at some of these uh, passages in Exodus chapter 3. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. I mean, you know this particular story of, of Moses, right? The, the one that God raises to rescue them. You remember the story of the Egyptians who held uh, two million Israelites in slavery and how they were working as slaves in Egypt. And, and God hears their, their groaning. He hears the, the pain of their suffering. He hears their cries. And he does something about it. Or Psalm 82, the psalmist who cries out, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. How the psalmist cries out, balance the scales. How long, O Lord? And Nahum, his sermon's all about the vivid details of how God is about to crush Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire. The dominant superpower of the world at that day, they are about to be wiped out. And you see, that was Nahum's sermon. And so it's somewhat staggering that in the middle of this first chapter of this sermon of gloom and doom, crushing defeat for Nineveh and Assyria, you find the verse almost out of nowhere. Another trait, another quality, another characteristic of, of God. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. There's not a lot of good when you read the three chapters in this book. Most is found in the first chapter. But look at the contrast. Nahum alternates between the destruction of Nineveh and the restoration of Judah to show a contrast. And again, all to say that our God is sovereign. He controls all these things. He knows all things. He directs and controls all things. And he does so because he is good. Let me start off with verse, number, uh, verse 6 in chapter 1. 
Uh, again, the, the prophet says, uh, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. And then all of a sudden, there's a changing of the gear. But the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. There's a stunning promise in those words. The Lord is good. And look at verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And then he switches gears. And the Lord will no, by no means clear the guilty. Or verse 12. Thus says the Lord, though they are full, at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. He's talking about the Ninevites. And then he switches gears again and says, though I have afflicted you, it's a, almost like a, he's speaking to two different groups in this one verse, to uh, Ninevites out of one part of his mouth, and then to the other, Judah. He says, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. You see, because it was the Lord who had led them into captivity, you see, uh, God had told the Israelites, the people of God, that they would be punished for their sins. And Israel, even Israel and Judah didn't listen. They disobeyed God. They sinned against God. And so God led them into captivity and were held in captivity by Egyptians and Babylonians and Assyrians, all sorts of people. It was God who led them into captivity. And in the promise in verse 12, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. There's these contrasts between Nineveh and Judah, between destruction and restoration, between condemnation and consolation. And what we see here is the one who was on top will be brought down. The one who was on the bottom will be restored. This is the way that God operates. Last will be first and the first will be last. God humbles those who exalt themselves and God exalts those who hum humble themselves, the Lord is good. And in the darkness of such passages, God brings hope. He brings light and salvation. So as we look at the character of God with these descriptions about who God is, the question for us still remains, how do we apply such a text? How do we apply the message of Nahum to us living in the 21st century? I have a few thoughts. One, I believe that God hears our prayers. God hears our prayers. He hears our prayers for help. He hears our cries for intervention. He hears our prayers for the end of injustice. He hears our cries for the end of war. He hears our prayers for the end of criminal activity. He hears our prayers. And again, as we ask in the prayers of the, of the people this morning, will you ever restore us? Why is this happening? And when we are tempted to think, uh, has God forgotten us? Nahum reminds us that we can trust that he is our, as we prayed, ultimate defender. He will restore. He will fully redeem all those who trust in him. We prayed, oh God, we look to you today as our defender when we are slandered, 
when we are spoken against, when we are mistreated, when we are hurt in different ways, God will look to you as our defender, as the one who rises up on our behalf, on behalf of your people in love, in mercy, and care, the care of a father for his children. You are our defender, and we rest in you. My friends, I'm here to tell you, if you're not convinced already through the words of Scripture, that God cares powerfully, that God cares deeply about justice. So much of the Scriptures are filled, and again, I know we heard the sermon last week of the oppressed and the poor and the blind and the widow and the orphan. God cares powerfully, deeply about justice, about the balancing of the scales. That's why we see such books like Nahum, and where we see and we, we wonder, is God just a God of wrath, and is God is just a God of vengeance? Well, he does so to protect. You see, when we read it in the, in the perspective of of God himself, it all makes, begins to make sense. I mean, when we look at it in terms of a covenant relationship, it begins to make sense. I mean, I don't know how you've reacted when someone has hurt someone in your family, how violent or how uh, violent you could become, um, you know, or the things you say in retaliation, right, or, or how you go out of your way to protect those in your care. And think about a God who loves us so deeply, who cares for us so wonderfully, that when there are oppressors and when there are attackers, when there are enemies, that God does what he can to protect and to care for. You see, God hears our prayer. God cares powerfully and deeply about justice. God will judge those who oppose him, and certainly God will oppose those who oppose his people. The good news, because there is good news in the book of Nahum, is that the ultimate tyranny under which the oppressed live will one day come to an end. We can take comfort in this uncomfortable God. Nahum, yes, it's both a warning of calamity for God's enemies, but it's also a word of comfort for God's people. And if you didn't know it already, in the book of Hebrew, uh, I'm sorry, in the book of uh, Nahum, in the Hebrew, uh, his name means comfort. It indeed offers comfort from an uncomfortable God. The prophet reveals God in terms of justice, power, and goodness, and artfully and theologically intertwines the message of judgment and grace, of condemnation and consolation, of mercy, yes, and also justice. We can live in that tension that God is, is both, that God is both a God of wrath and also a God of salvation. 
And the text tells us, the book of Nahum reminds us that God will one day be the, uh, is now the ultimate victor. Number two, just some application points. Uh, one, he hears our prayer when we pray. Number two, I think if there's any message, I, I think as I read through the three chapters of Nahum, it's this. We ought to seek the Lord while he may be found. Because God gives us umpteenth number of chances. He gives us opportunities to come over and over again. He, he longs for us to come to him. He, he desires that all men would be saved, it tells us in Scripture. You see, the, the goal is that, uh, that people would come to him. And again, he gives us uh, second and third and fourth and fifth and a hundred and a million chances to come and repent and to confess our sins and to come to him and seek him while we, he may be found. But if Nahum teaches us anything, it's that one day those chances will be no more. The book is a message about the destruction of Nineveh. They have been given opportunities to repent for their oppression of surrounding nations. Um, If the prophecy warns us about anything, it's that there are opportunities now, but will not always be. Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. My friends, this is a plea. There's a God who waits, a God who patiently longs for his son and daughter to come home. And he waits. And he waits. The picture, it says in Isaiah 55, is one who is quick to forgive. He will abundantly pardon. It says, let him return to the Lord that he may have, that God may have compassion on that repentant sinner. I mean, it almost sounds like uh, just you have a winning lottery ticket in hand. Just go cash the check, right? Or cash the, the tickets already. And it seems like there's this plea that there's this, God wants to, and God is quick to. And perhaps it's not the unwillingness of God, but it's our unwillingness and our stubbornness that keeps us from, giving, from, from approaching a God who is, who is quick to forgive our sins. My friends, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Thirdly, the people of uh, Nahum, or the people in Nahum's time, were well aware of God as divine warrior. A warrior who had rescued their forefathers from bondage and slavery in Egypt at the Red Sea. And during Nahum's time, the people of God would could still hope that the divine warrior would intervene and alleviate their oppression by destroying their enemies, particularly here the Assyrians. At the end of the Old Testament period, the prophets looked forward to the coming of a mighty warlike deliverer who would deliver the people of Israel out of their oppression. 
Nahum reveals God as a warrior who fights for his people. And as we come to the New Testament, God reveals Jesus Christ who becomes our rescuer. That God would send his one and only son, the one who came, will come again and put an end to all evil. In verse 15, the last verse of this chapter, the prophet writes, Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feet, so Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Nahum would say, you look for the feet, the feet that bring good news, and you understand that when you look at the feet, that there are piercings, nail piercings there at his feet, and you also know that there are nail piercings in his hands. And suddenly you know with absolute certainty that God always keeps his promises. God never goes back on his vows. For you see, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? The Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. He knows those who are looking to the nail-pierced feet, the nail-pierced hands stretched out, saying, it's not you being faithful. It's not you being triumphant that qualifies you. It's your recognizing that you need a stronghold because you don't have one on your own. It's that you come looking for refuge and you run to the only place that provides it. God records these judgments that he is a God of judgment as well as of love. And that the judgment upon the wicked will absolutely, will certainly come. And God tells us that we might turn from our wickedness and seek his face at the cross of his son. For you see, deliverance and refuge and salvation is found at this cross. Because it's at that cross, the full judgment and the wrath of God is poured. It is there that God pours out his full judgment. And Jesus says, the cross is your shelter. It is only as we stand beneath that cross that we are protected from the greatest judgment of all, that God would on himself bear the wrath of our sins and that he would be our substitute, that his body would be broken for us on a cross and his blood would be shed, that you and I would not have to face the full wrath, the full force of his punishment, but that it would be placed on his son. And that Jesus says, if you want to find refuge, if you want to find a stronghold, come beneath that cross. 
and find protection there. 